Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. In the West, the Tokugawa shogunate is best known for being the government that began Japan's Sakoku Jidai, or isolation period. When Westerners think of the shogunate, if they think of it at all, they think of Japan as an isolated country cut off more or less from the rest of the world. But there is more to the shogunate than that. Far more. The Tokugawa era is fascinating for a number of reasons. For instance, they attempted, essentially, a zero-growth economy that didn't interact with anything else, which uh, didn't work out in the long run. But it's neat to think about. And the shogunate also successfully, albeit brutally and bloodily, ushered in a period of relative peace for Japan. And the ascendancy of the shogunate, as much as Westerners might think of it as conservative and backward-looking and xenophobic, was also in some ways sort of, kind of, progressive a little. It closed the book on the Sengoku Jidai, or the Warring States period in Japan, which was pretty much exactly what it sounded like. And after that period, the country eased up a bit on the constant warfare and battle and killing people and all that, and many of the local leaders transitioned from being warlords and military commanders and into being courtiers and politicians and administrators. And the next two episodes are all about the tension caused by that kind of division, by a culture going from being all about war and martial stuff and into being about peace, politics, and court life. And it's about an instance of violence that erupted because of that tension. This is the story of the 47 Ronin, and I do want to emphasize that this is very much a story. A lot of what I'm going to talk about in this episode and in the next is occluded by mythologizing and interpretation and reinterpretation. The 47 Ronin incident probably did happen. It almost certainly happened. But it's hard to talk about and it's hard to get information about. Imagine trying to get a picture of George Washington, the historical figure, just by looking at popular portrayals of George Washington and mythologizing of him. The dude never actually chopped down that cherry tree. He never skipped a silver dollar across the Potomac. He probably didn't look as good as he looked in that painting while crossing the Delaware. You'd have to cut through a lot of idealization and mythologizing to get at what actually happened. You'd have your work cut out for you, and that's what we have here. So most of what I'm going to talk about in this very famous historical story, this legend, it stems from an actual incident, but keep that in mind. A lot of it is kind of like the equivalent of George Washington chopping down that cherry tree. It's been distorted and popularized for years by dramatists and by retellers and by all sorts of other folks. And the earliest English language version of this story, it's in a book called Tales of Old Japan by A.B. Mitford. And I'll be drawing on Mitford a lot over the next two episodes. Mitford, he was one of the earliest British diplomatic officials dispatched to Japan after it was forcibly opened by the U.S. And Mitford's writings are entertaining. Um, but they have the whiff of legend, folklore, and potential inauthenticity about them. Uh, 
on more than one occasion, I got the impression that he was embellishing himself, and there's more than a little Orientalism in his work. Nevertheless, outside of Japanese drama and hearsay and oral tradition, Mitford's writings, problematic as they are, are one of the best-known versions of the 47 Ronin story, at least for somebody like me who speaks English. So, during the Shogunate, the Tokugawas, they set up a new capital in Edo, now modern-day Tokyo, and as part of controlling the various subordinate districts, the Shogunate required the daimyos, the lords, to periodically stay at Edo, essentially so they'd be reminded who was in fact boss. The daimyos were not allowed to just stay in their own domains and be boss all the time. They had to go to Edo and get bossed. Before I talk about anything else, some of you might be wondering about the emperor and what he was doing, and the answer is not much. Uh, during the Tokugawa shogunate, the emperor existed, yes, but he was more of a religious leader hanging out in Kyoto than a political leader. Uh, think of the emperor in this era as a really underpowered pope, as opposed to, you know, Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great or something like that. And emperor might not even be the best word for the Japanese emperor. The word for the Japanese emperor, Tenno, is different from the word they use for foreign emperors and monarchs, Daio. And the Japanese emperor didn't really start doing emperor-type stuff until after the Meiji Restoration, when the modern conception of the Japanese emperor and empire was conceived, but that's a topic for another episode. Back to the matter at hand, though. The actual historical record does not have a lot to say about the thing that sparked the 47 Ronin incident. We know that, at some point, a daimyo visiting Edo drew his short sword upon a courtier, wounding him. That's it. We don't know the details, the motives, or any hard facts, unfortunately. Here, though, is the legend. Part of the power play of recalling the local leaders to Edo by the shogun was to make the various daimyos adhere to standards of etiquette and court behavior, and that is where our story starts. Asano Naganori was the young daimyo of the Ako region, near where modern Osaka is today. And when he was called to Edo, he, like the other daimyos, had to undergo etiquette training. And in this instance, I have some sympathy for Asano, because this must have been humiliating, and I suspect it was supposed to be humiliating. At home, he was an authority, and once in Edo, he had to be instructed in arbitrary and obscure interactions designed to keep him in his place. The courtier, Kira Yoshinaka, was to be Asano's etiquette instructor, and on top of that, Asano was supposed to bribe Kira, and Kira found Asano's bribes to be wanting. So, Asano, he is supposed to get belittled by this guy, he's also supposed to bribe this guy, and relations between the two guys kind of break down. And here is Mitford on how bad the relationship between Asano and Kira got. Quote, Takami no Kami, that is what Mitford refers to Asano as, who had sent no present, arrived at the castle, and Kotsuke no Suke, uh, that's Kira, Mitford is using his title rather than his name, turned him into ridicule even more than before, provoking him with sneers and covert insults. But Takami no Kami affected to ignore all of this, and submitted himself patiently to Kotsuke no Suke's orders. This conduct, 
so far from producing a good effect, only made Kotsuke no Suke despise him more, until at last he said haughtily, Here, my lord of Takami, the ribbon of my sock has come untied. Be so good as to tie it up for me. Takami no Kami, although burning with rage at the affront, still thought as he was on duty, he was bound to obey, and tied up the ribbon of the sock. Then Kotsuke no Suke, turning from him, petulantly exclaimed, Why, how clumsy you are! You cannot so much as tie up the ribbon of a sock properly. Anyone can see you are a bore from the country, and know nothing of the manners of Ito. And with a scornful laugh, he moved toward the inner room. Unquote. So imagine if you were a Sano, you were the lord of a domain, and while at home, you got to give orders, execute people, live comfortably, and suddenly some pompous court official is telling you to get on your knees and tie his shoe just because he can, and he calls you a yokel. That would be highly anger-making. According to legend, after these insults, and also after Asano failed to bribe Kira adequately, Asano drew his weapon on the courtier. He drew his wakizashi on Kira, his short sword, in a fit of pique and rage, and did manage to cut the courtier, to wound him mildly. And, never mind more obscure rules of how you talk to people, when you sit, when you stand, what you say. Drawing a weapon and cutting somebody is a serious breach of etiquette for the shogun's court. And Asano had to be punished. The punishment for his assault was death, which, you know, is sort of extreme. But I imagine he was being made an example of. And since he was a noble, he was a daimyo, Asano would have the dubious privilege of carrying out the execution himself. He was ordered to commit seppuku. Now a word on seppuku, also known more vulgarly as harikari, because it will be important later. Suicide in battle situations to avoid capture by the enemy goes back pretty far in Japan, but it's not unique to Japan. Um, a lot of people like to think about seppuku and ritual suicide and suicide to regain honor is something oh-so-distinctly Japanese, but I refer you to Mark Anthony falling on his sword or Cleopatra poisoning herself with an asp, two prominent examples from Western civilization of people killing themselves to regain a certain amount of honor and dignity, and also, in both of their cases, avoid capture and further humiliation and pain. Also, seppuku, it was fairly uncommon in Japan. Um, far less common than popular media would have you believe, with samurai killing themselves gleefully all the time. In fact, it's probably perceived as being highly prevalent because of the story I'm telling you right now. And it was also not something that farmers, merchants, or ordinary people were allowed to do. If those people ran afoul of the law, uh, they were just plain executed. The noble and warrior class, though, when they were sentenced to die they were allowed the privilege of carrying out their executions themselves. This was perceived as absolving themselves to a certain extent of wrongdoing. So what you had happen was battlefield suicides being common because you could avoid capture, and then in this period of peace to Tokugawa shogunate, this thing getting more ritualized and more mannered. So it was an execution, but it was an execution that had overtones of hey, this is what the warrior class does when things are desperate 
And now the warrior class, instead of being out there and fighting, they are carrying out all these rituals while they are wearing swords. And this execution, it's an act of penitence, but it's still a form of execution. So Asano, he has this privilege of killing himself. And he's going to do this thing that stems from warriors saving face, avoiding capture, taking their lives into their own hands, etc. But everyone would have still seen it for what it was which was him getting killed by the authorities, even though Asano would get to hold the blade, or rather have to hold the blade himself. And after Asano's forced suicide, or let's be real here, execution, his household and his lands were broken up, and his retainers were suddenly unemployed. The samurai, there were about 300 of them, who had been affiliated with him became ronin, masterless samurai. Had this been wartime, it's very probable that all of Asano's samurai could have found employment elsewhere with some lord or another lord who wanted to war upon their neighbors and was constantly hiring new men with swords. But this was the Tokugawa shogunate. This was a period of peacetime, and there were not a lot of job openings for, you know, professional sword and arrow guys. Asano, he had about, again, 300 samurai under him, and most of them, they found employment. They became merchants, they became craftsmen, they hooked up with other lords, that type of thing. But 47 of them didn't. 47 of Asano's samurai, these newly minted ronin, didn't move on. They decided, for one reason or another, on revenge. And the chief among them was Oishi, one of the older samurai. He gathered the various ronin, uh, organized them and coordinating their strategy to get back at Kira, who they perceived as causing the death of their master. Kira, they knew, had provoked Asano's wrath. Asano had drawn a weapon on him. Asano had died because of that. And they would finish what their lord had started. Oishi and the other 46 ronin would wait. They would wait for about two years. If they took immediate action, Kira, they thought, would be ready for them. Instead, they would bide their time and prepare, and they would serve this dish cold. And there was all kinds of elaborate cover that these guys did. Oishi, for instance, would pretend to be a drunken vagrant who posed no harm. Um, quoting from Mitford again, The Ronin saw that the only way of attaining their end would be to throw their enemy off his guard. With this object, they separated and disguised themselves. Some as carpenters or craftsmen, others as merchants, and their chief, Kuronosuke, that's what Midford is calling Oishi, went to Kyoto and built a house in a quarter called Yamashima, and he took to frequenting houses of the worst repute, and gave himself up to drunkenness and debauchery, as if nothing were further from his mind and revenge. Kotsuke no Suke, again, that's what Midford is calling Kira, in the meanwhile, suspecting that Takumi no Kami's former retainers would be scheming against his life, secretly sent spies to Kyoto and caused a faithful account to be kept of all that Kuronosuke did. The latter, however, determined thoroughly to delude the enemy into a false security, went on leading a dissolute life with harlots and winebibers. One day, as he was returning home, drunk from some low haunt, he fell down in the street and went to sleep, and all the passers-by laughed at him with scorn. One day, as he was returning home, drunk from some low haunt, he fell down in the street and went to sleep. 
and all the passers-by laughed at him with scorn. It happened as Satsuma man saw this, and said, Is this not Oishi Kuronosuke, who is a counselor of Asano Takumi no Kami, and who, not having the heart to avenge his lord, gives himself up to women and wine? See how he lies, drunk in the public street, faithless beast, fool and craven, unworthy the name of samurai. Unquote. Oishi also left his wife and children in order to better appear to be a dissolute, drunken vagabond, which makes him sound like kind of a jerk, ending his marriage and abandoning his family in order to get revenge. This guy sounds like a terrible boyfriend. What Oishi and the other ronin planned to do was, of course, completely illegal. The Tokugawa shogunate did not allow for acts of vengeance such as the one they sought to perform, and honestly, their vengeance would have looked a little weird even in Japan. One of the good breakdowns about this I read was from a professor of Japanese history at Columbia, a guy called Henry D. Smith II, and he talked about how this would have not been allowed in Japanese society at the time, and how there wasn't really a lot of precedent for their plan of revenge either. Uh, quoting Smith, They justified their attack as a vendetta on behalf of their lord, but no way did the case fit either the legal or customary definition of vendetta. Kira, after all, was not their master's murderer. On the contrary, Asano had tried to murder Kira. Nor was there any justification for avenging the death of one's lord, only that of a family member. The ronin even had to call on a Confucian scholar to come up with a textual basis for their action. Legalities aside, what was the underlying spirit of their act? Was it indeed personal loyalty to their lord, or was it a protest against the bakufus, that is, the Tokugawa shogunate's, lenient treatment of Kira for his involvement in the incident? Or was it a simple matter of personal honor to carry out their master's unfinished task? Or, as one school of interpretation would have it, were they impoverished samurai desperate for a new job in trying to prove their credentials? Unquote. The traditional version of this tale is all about honor, but I find it just as convincing that the ronin were motivated by desperation, or as Smith suggests, a desire to pad their warrior's resume. And next week, the 47 ronin will take their revenge on Kira, and they will inspire an entire tradition of storytelling and media. They will appear, after their bloody act, in literature, drama, film, and, very significantly, really violent puppet shows, next week on Interesting Times. If you have any questions, comments, love notes, hate notes, uh, go ahead and drop me a line on Facebook or write up a review on iTunes about how either you loved or did not love the show. Uh, search for Interesting Time on iTunes, give us any number of stars you like, preferably five, and then please say words about the podcast. That would be lovely. Uh, you can also get a hold of me on Twitter. I am at Joe Strecker. If you want to support the podcast, that would be lovely. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com and click on the link to support this thing on the Patreon. Thank you guys very much for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>